We shouldn't talk about this may contain graphic descriptions and or explicit content that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hi everybody, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this is We Shouldn't Talk About This. Hey Key, it is the last week of October. Can you believe it? I cannot. I can't believe we're already at our Halloween finale. Yes, we're at the closing of our Halloween saga for 2020, at least. You have uh, any any costume you're gonna dress up as? I do not celebrate Halloween. Thanks, but no thanks. You don't even do like little costume parties and stuff like that. Nah. Well, I'm definitely dressing up. I have a couple costumes that I can choose from. May hit up a. Several parties, you know. Are you gonna do like midday costume changes? Oh yeah, I'm definitely gonna costume hop. Wow, you, that's commitment right there. I applaud you. Well, fortunately, I don't have to do makeup or anything like that. I just throw on different garments and I'm good to go. That's smart. That's smart. Because if it was like full face coverage that you had to like undo and redo, that'd be a lot. That would be a lot. And, like, luckily, just, like, the outfits can, like, you know, kind of speak for themselves, and I can still portray my regular face. So. But your regular face isn't too scary. I've made babies cry before, so I don't know about that. Maybe it was just your personality. I feel like I have a good personality. Animals love me. Like, you know, animals really, they they, they can really tell if you're a good person, not just by your presence. That's true. That's true. But yeah, maybe maybe I need to work on my baby etiquette. (laughs) Well, what is the topic for our finale? I just want to keep talking about Halloween. So maybe like crimes that took place on Halloween? That seems fitting and proper. All right, then. Would you like to take it away this week or would you like me to start? Sure, I will start and tell you my little my little tale of a crime committed on Halloween. So gather around, children. It's time for a tale of crime. My story is a little different this week. It is majority from the SandeskiRegister.com, an article by Sarah Weber, because this did not really make national headlines, so there was not a lot of information about it, but I wanted to give credit where credit was due right offhand because I am basically just reading the article from SandeskiRegister.com. So, Devin Griffin returned home to 7052 North Ohio On October 31st, 2010, after singing in his Sunday morning church service. So sweet. So wholesome. So wholesome. The 16-year-old trudged up to his room to play video games. At about 1.30, he began to wonder why nobody was around. His mother, Susan Lisk, who was 46, would normally be out of bed by then 
and so would the rest of his family. Devin went downstairs to the master bedroom and found his mother in bed next to his stepfather, William Bill Lisk, who was 53. And the maroon comforter was pulled up to their heads. Devin started talking to wake his mom. He walked around to her side of the bed and saw her foot jutting from beneath the covers. He tapped on her leg, but he didn't get a response. He continued to talk to Susan, pulling the covers down a little. That's when he saw her pillow was soaked with blood. For a moment, he thought, this must be a Halloween prank. But he slowly realized it wasn't. The young man screamed as he ran from the room and out the house. New investigative reports filed that week in the triple homicide case against William B.J. Lisk, 24, who was his Devin's stepfather's son, shone a light on the events leading up to the murder. The documents also reveal a glimpse into the family struggle with B.J. Lisk and his father's attempts to love him despite the boy's moody and violent behavior. So, B.J. Lisk is accused of murdering his father, William, his stepmother, Lisa, and his stepbrother, Derek Griffin, who was 23. Here's a little background. As early as 2002, Bill Lisk called law enforcement because the then 16-year-old B.J. Lisk threatened to harm himself. The boy was on house arrest at the time. According to the police records, B.J. attacked the officers when they arrived and faced charges in juvenile court of assaulting a peace officer. Then, In October 2004, B.J. got into a fight with his stepmother and struck her hard in the chest. Two months later, police charged him with felonious assault and robbery for allegedly hitting Susan with the coffee cup and stealing her car keys. He was found incompetent to stand trial on those charges, which were eventually dropped. BJ had at least three encounters with police after he moved to Sandusky Group Home for mental patients. Among those incidents was a physical fight between BJ and his dad after Bill Lisk picked him up from the group home. After the triple homicide, friends and families told authorities about other violent outbursts. Bill Lisk had kicked his son out of the house after BJ, who was then 18, attempted to attack Susan as she showered. He had a strained relationship with his stepmother from the start, after his parents' divorce, B.J. started skipping school and misbehaving, that the, uh, the neighbor said. When Bill and Susan married in 2001, Susan attempted to impose order in the house, and her stepson resented the new rules. Investigators who interviewed family friend Mark Gradell wrote in a report that Bill often called Mark to help if B.J. caused problems. Quote, Bill would say, hey, come over, it's BJ, or BJ is getting goofy. But on at least one occasion, Derek called Mark because BJ and Bill were physically fighting. Derek was BJ's stepbrother. 
Now, despite the fights, Bill never gave up on his son. In February 2006, he filed for guardianship over BJ. According to the court records, the 18-year-old had been hospitalized in 2007 for schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type. Mr. Lisk wants to protect William and get him the help he needs, the guardianship application states. He would eventually like to see him in a halfway house or a group home. When William is on his medication, he does really good. After a while, he will stop taking it because he thinks he's okay and starts drinking or smoking pot. Sadly, that's like a lot of people who are on medication, like once it starts kicking in and they're good, then they stop taking it because they think they don't need it anymore. And then they have like a break, like a psychotic break at that point or a psychotic episode because they think they're all right and they don't need the medicine when in reality, it's the medicine getting so, them to that point of being all right. Yeah. So after BJ moved into the halfway house in Sandusky, Bill Liss visited often. The week before the murders, Gradell told investigators Bill took some vacation time and went deer hunting with his son. They went to the family's hunting cabin in Carroll County and returned home to Ottawa County less than 24 hours before the murder. Gradell said he had serious talks with Bill on a few occasions about the family's safety being jeopardized by BJ. Neighbors suspected the younger Lisk of killing and torturing their pets. The Gradell's dog was shot twice with 22 caliber bullets. But Bill would tell Gradell, Quote, BJ won't hurt us. Mark said it was a hard conversation to have because BJ was Bill's only son and Bill would never see the bad even though he received physical injuries from BJ himself. After Bill and his son returned home from hunting that Saturday before Halloween, they got together for a few beers with friends. Gridell, who was at the gathering, told investigators everyone had a good time. He didn't see Derek Griffin, Susan's 23-year-old son, but that was not unusual because he and BJ did not get along. BJ rarely spent the night at the house because of past violent fights between him and the rest of the family. But Bill had been drinking and he didn't think it was a good idea to drive his son back to Sandusky. Which is sad because had he drove him, this might not have happened. Yeah, this all could have been avoided. So the party broke up around midnight, according to the investigators' reports. When investigators searched the house, they found a bed made up on the living room sofa, apparently for BJ. Gridell's wife, Michelle, told investigators she heard what sounded like gunshots at about 6.30 a.m., on October 31st, investigators were still determining the time of the murders at the time this was written. According to phone records, Derek last spoke to someone at 2.02 p.m. on October 30th. Derek's brother, Devin, spent the weekend with his dad and came home about 9.30 on October 31st, 
and that's when he had come home from church. He told investigators he encountered only BJ when he came home the first time in the morning. He changed, and then he left in about five minutes. BJ had uncharacteristically asked him where he was or what he was doing and how long he'd be gone. Devin said he couldn't think of anything else that was said, but stated BJ was acting happier. To explain, Devin stated that normally BJ is gloomy. The investigator wrote, I asked Devin what made him think BJ was acting happier. Devin stated it was because he was happier, more upbeat, and more talkative. Devin stated that BJ is normally slow and darkish. After Devin left the house for church, BJ took the family's Ford F-150 and drove it to the hunting cabin in Carroll County. He was there less than an hour when Carroll County sheriffs descended upon the camp and took him into custody. Now back home in Ottawa County, authorities discovered the extent of the grisly crime scene. Devin Griffin's aunt Lori Morse called them to the rural home that sits on about 100 acres. Her nephew had called her in a panic about what he saw, and she went to the house to console him and call authorities. Investigators found that Bill and Susan Lisk had been shot to death in their bed. According to the coroner reports, Bill was shot five times in the head and face at a range of about one to two feet. He was lying in a natural sleeping position and had the covers pulled up over him. Susan was sprawled more awkwardly as if she might have been moved, investigators wrote. She was shot three times, again at what investigators suspect was close range. The bullets were small caliber, likely a twenty-two, and a medical examination revealed she had been raped. Oh my gosh. Upstairs, they found Derek Griffin's room locked. Police kicked the door in, and they found the young man curled up in bed facing the wall. According to the coroner's findings, he suffered blunt force trauma to the head and most likely died within minutes of the first blow. Investigators found a bloody claw hammer in the house, which coroners found to be consistent with Derek Griffin's wounds. The weapon and other evidence from around the home was sent to the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation for Forensic Testing. Devin Griffin told investigators the family owned lots of guns, many of which authorities seized for testing. They found muddy footprints along a deck near the family's pond, suggesting the suspect may have disposed of the murder weapon in the pond. Authorities drained the pond but found no gun. Weapon-sniffing dogs tracked much of the property, but found nothing. BJ had been charged in Ottawa County Common Pleas Court with counts of aggravated murder in each of the deaths. He could face the death penalty if found guilty. But progress in the criminal proceedings will likely depend on BJ Liska's mental state. The court has already appointed a guardian for the young man and approved a competency evaluation. 
If medical personnel finds he is incompetent to stand trial, the court will have to determine if he can be rehabilitated to competency. Now, uh, he was held on a $3 million bond and was moved to the Erie County Jail because a family member of one of the victim works in Ottawa County Corrections. However, List did finally end up pleading guilty to three counts of aggravated murder on September 12, 2001, admitting he killed his father, William List Sr., his stepmother, Susan, and her son, Derek Griffin, on October 31st. Before his sentencing in 2011, Lisk apologized for killing his father, stepmother, and stepbrother, blaming mental illness and Satan for his actions. He was sentenced to three life sentences with no chance of parole. Now, B.J. Lisk was found dead in his cell on March 31st, 2015 at Ross Correctional Institute in Chillicothe from what they're calling a self-inflicted injury. He was 29 at the time. Lieutenant Craig Savetin was conducting the investigation, stated, quote, at this point is being investigated as a suicide. He said it was a self-inflicted wound. They never said what type of wound it was, and I could not find any reports of anything else being changed or updated so I just have to go with they ruled it a suicide and closed it yeah when you're locked up like how how much can you do to yourself right and the fact that they're saying it's a self-inflicted wound it, it that mm. makes me think gunshot like <laughs> yeah like well I, either that or like someone like a you know bash his head in somewhere and it's like you know like a, a hole in something right like, it's not saying he was hung or anything like that. They're or saying self-inflicted wound. So it's yeah. very strange that they're calling it that. But there was never any update past 2015 on this story. Very, very interesting. Yeah, I chose it because the headline was, Boy thought uh, his parents' death was a Halloween prank. And I was like, dang, that sucks. He came back from that church. Does suck. And he, he found his mom and stepdad dead. And he didn't even like realize probably that his brother was in there. He just ran out the house. That was terrible. Well, Key, thank you for that story. Um, I'm glad that justice was brought to BJ. At least in that he didn't, you know, go on and live his, live out his life or whatever, you know. Glad that justice was brought to him. He didn't, he wasn't going to get death penalty anyway, right? He could have gotten the death penalty if he was found competent to stand trial. And I think maybe that's why they offered him the plea deal because he had such a long history of mental illness. Maybe they thought that he wouldn't be found competent and then he would like get off. Cause you know, you can be committed and after a couple years, they deemed that you're fine to go back into society. Yeah. So maybe they were trying to avoid that happening. 
true crime historian presents yesterday's news. Tales of the scandals, scoundrels, and scourges of the past told through historic newspaper accounts in the golden age of yellow journalism. Whether it's a love triangle gone awry, a botched robbery, or the deadly shenanigans of a desperate fugitive, true crime historian has got the scoop. New episodes every Thursday at www.truecrimehistorian.com or whatever podcast player you love best. That is definitely one Halloween murder we shall soon forget. Now, the story I'm about to tell is one that is a pretty legendary, considering being a child myself, what happened after I trick-or-treated for the first time and realized what my mom was doing with my bag. Now... Do you remember um, ever ever being with ever being at our house when we came back home from trick or treating and you know mom mama went through our bags of candy to make sure there's nothing like nothing sharp in there nothing you know smell funny or anything like that. Yeah, you know she always checked the bags for dangerous objects, make sure there wasn't an apple full of razor blades in your bag and stuff like that. Now, I'm sure that has gone on since, you know, Halloween has been a thing. Like, there's always been bad people out there. But this case right here is what really got, like, America, like, really frazzled about what can be in your kid's candy on Halloween night. On October 31st, 1974, Pasadena, Texas. You ever been to Pasadena? No. Okay. It's about, like, 20 minutes out from Houston. After I went then I probably up. have been. And just didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, probably just went through it. On a partly cloudy, chilly Texas night, perfect for trick-or-treating, Timothy O'Brien's dressed up in his Planet of the Apes costumes. He was joined by his five-year-old sister, Elizabeth, friends from church, Mark and Kimberly Bates, and their father, Jim Bates. Weeks prior, Ronald, Timothy's father, and Jim made plans for their kids to trick-or-treat together. Neighbors, Ronald and Jim, took their kids out trick-or-treating through the neighborhood as Jim stood on the sidewalk chaperoning while Ronald took the kids door-to-door to get candy. They approached the home on Donnerell Drive. The light was off, a usual sign that no one's home or not participating in the candy handouts. They rang the doorbell anyway. The children got impatient and walked to the next house. Ronald stayed behind and then caught back up to the kids. It began to drizzle, so they were forced to turn back earlier than expected. When they got home, Timothy was going through his loot of candy, but his parents said they did not want them to eat it as the night was getting late. But they did allow him to choose one treat for the evening. And Timothy picked a pixie stick tube. Ah, good old pixie sticks. Good old pixie sticks. When he got out of the pixie stick, he he was able to rip it apart, but the powdered sugar was stuck in the straw and it wasn't coming out properly. So his dad helped him dislodge it. He just pounded the whole thing. He complained that it tasted bitter, so his dad grabbed him a glass of Kool-Aid to wash away the taste. Later that night, Ronald made an emergency call saying that his son had eaten poison candy. 
The ambulance, which was already in the area, arrived within minutes. Little Timothy died only an hour after eating the candy. No, Timmy. That's terrible. It's terrible. The police needed the full rundown of what happened that night to aid with the investigation. Ronald and the officers walked the neighborhood three times, trying to jog his memory. Everything was so foggy, he was saying. The policemen that made a thorough investigation of the events in the neighborhood discovered that no one had actually handed out pixie sticks. That's weird. Nobody handed out pixie sticks? I guess pixie sticks weren't, weren't the ones to give. I guess they were giving out little chocolates. I guess candy is the same in the 70s. I would think so. I don't know. I don't know either. So, this discovery made Ronald nervous as he needed a cover to make sure that he wasn't searched for if he ever bought pixie sticks in the last couple of weeks or so. Why would he be nervous? Ronald said that Courtney Melvin's house was where the pixie sticks may have come from. The house with the quote-unquote lights off, he said. And that after they did not receive an answer when knocking and saying trick-or-treat, they went to the next house. But before they got through the walkway, the door opened and a hairy arm gave five pixie sticks to Mr. Ronald. Now, the latest lead, police brought Melvin in from his job for questioning. And Melvin said that he was working the night of the 31st at Hobby Airport. Over 200 people confirmed they saw him at work and that he did not return home until around 11 p.m. Jim Bates, the other parent chaperoning the trick-or-treaters, said that Melvin never answered the door that night. Jim did recall something. He said when Ron and the kids went up to the one house where the wall was concealing the front door, no one answered and the kids walked off. Ron appeared from behind the wall a few seconds later with five straws around 20 inches long filled with flavored sugar called pixie sticks. Ronald claims that the residents of the house had answered the door and given the candy to the children. But after Jim Bates said this, the investigators turned their attention back to Ronald, but this time as a potential culprit. The prosecutors on the case were Michael Hinton and Victor Driscoll. Wanting to get his investigation underway, Hinton called Dr. Joseph A. Jahimzik, chief medical examiner of nearby Harris County. Harris County? <laughs> That's where I used to live. Oh, for real? Yeah. <laughs> Quote, I told him the situation and he asked what the young man's breath smelled like. Unquote, says Hinton now. A call to the morgue revealed there was a scent of almonds coming from the boy's mouth. What is almonds key? Cyanide poisoning. Cyanide poisoning. An autopsy proved the medical examiner's hunch. A pathologist said Timothy had consumed enough cyanide to kill two adult people. Tests later found that the top two inches of the pixie stick had been packed with the poison. This bastard gave his child poison pixie sticks do you have any kind of hypothesis of what the motive may have been money that's the only thing i can think of insurance let's dive into that for the investigation they relied on physical evidence to get o'brien convicted through a search warrant a pair of scissors with plastic residue attached which was similar to that found 
on the cyanide lace suites was found. They also found out that O'Brien had taken a class at Harris County Community College and had asked his teacher questions like, quote, how much poison would it take to kill certain types of animals, unquote. And, quote, what is more lethal, cyanide or another type of poison, unquote. They also had a witness claiming that O'Brien came into the wholesale chemical store where he worked and inquired about cyanide. If you can get more obvious, just ask your professor questions of, is there a way to get away with murder? That's what I was going to say. He wasn't really covert with this. At all. This is what happens when amateurs are killing people. After an investigation, O'Brien was charged with the murder of Timothy O'Brien. Earlier in the year, Ronald O'Brien took out life insurance policies on his children. 10000 per child in January of that year, and then a further 20000 on each a month before Halloween. Investigators already knew Ronald owed debts of over $100,000. So when they found out, he'd call his insurers to ask about the payment at 9 a.m. the morning after Timothy's death, it was clear that the case against him was beginning to come together. What a scumbag! His plan was to murder both of his children, collect the money, and make it look like someone else did it. These findings were enough to find him guilty. In his closing statement, Driscoll called this incident, quote, the high water mark of shame in our community, unquote. Ronald O'Brien dubbed the Candyman by his fellow inmates, appealed his case several times, twice to the Supreme Court. All appeals were rejected. Good. On that March 31st, 1984, after asking for God's forgiveness of, all, of us all, O'Brien was administered a lethal injection and was pronounced dead at 12.48 a.m. I hope it hurt. I hope I hope they they missed the vein and he had to die a slow, painful death. I hope so too, because this man really deserves it. He is the scummest of scum. Rotten. You would kill your own kid for insurance? Oh, I hope he got beat in prison every day. Yeah, when they found out what he did, I hope they really gave him some good. Key does my story. That is the story about the man that ruined Halloween for the nation. Like, I just can't even. I'm so disgusted. <coughs> and so is my new puppy. And that's how I'm going to bring it up. My puppy is very, very disgusted over this whole situation. That's uh, my puppy, Cal, Cal Drogo from Game of Thrones. He's absolutely cute, and I'm going to post a picture of him on Instagram. The official, we should talk about this, puppy. Yes, the official. He is outraged and terrified, and now he can't go trick-or-treating because, I mean, I just don't even feel safe anymore. You know what? I don't feel safe either, so that's why I just go to my friends' parties where there's, you know... Social distance, of course. There's only about five or six or seven of us. You know, we're all keeping our part. 
We're staying with who we came with. We're waving at each other, no shaking hands, no dapping up or anything like that. You know, we're staying safe. That sounds fun. Hey, it's a necessary evil right now. That it is. So, everybody, I hope you guys are staying safe. Cal and I are not. We are out and about. We're on the town. No. We actually do go to the park, but we walk the trails away from everyone. So we do our social distancing like we're supposed to. And hopefully by next summer, this will all have gone away or at least died down to where we can be around each other again. But other than that, I don't see how that affected Halloween because he did it himself. It wasn't like a neighbor did it. So I don't I don't get how that really I mean I guess it would make people more cautious, but then I'd be like, well, he did it himself. So eat all your candy. I don't care. Just eat around the razor blades. I see what you're saying because like he had the intention of killing his child or poisoning his child and then making it look like it was an accident. But the thing is right. though, he had five pixie sticks and I'm sure he gave one to each of the kids uh, trick or treating. So that means he gave two to his children and then there were two, there were three more and he gave two of them to his neighbor's childs who fortunately didn't eat theirs or else they would have died too. And that would have been a complete mystery until he got caught. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense because he was trying to make it like, okay, all five kids died. Yeah, Obviously, exactly. there's somebody crazy in the neighborhood, which was him, but, you know, the hairy arm mystery person. Yeah. In the meantime, he was going to, you know, um, cry in front of people, take that sweet insurance money, I guess pay off some of his debts because 10000 and $20,000 on each child. So I guess... 60000 altogether would not cover that $100,000 in debt that he had, so. Right, and that's another part that didn't make sense. Like, he didn't even have enough insurance. He was still, he was trying to be a cheap, cheapskate and trying to commit insurance fraud by taking his own child's life. For not enough money. Like, that's why I don't understand. Like, what was he thinking? Like, oh, my gosh, he was just a, a real piece of shit. Like, you did it, and... You didn't even, you didn't kill both children. And even if he had, it still wasn't enough money to get him out of debt. Like, what kind of sense does this even make? It's like, he just wanted to kill his children just to kill them. Yeah, that's that's what it seems like. Because if you're going to commit a crime to make money, commit a crime like robbing a bank or something. I don't know. I just, uh, it just seems like a lot of trouble and unnecessariness. And I, I would never, ever, ever, and neither would Cal, want to kill a child for no reason at all. Like, that's just, that's where it blows my mind. Like, I could probably understand if he tried to kill his wife. But the kids are innocent. I just don't get it. Neither do I. And and from what I read, this was a... Uh, church uh, or God-fearing family a family went to church every Sunday and a very like you know a family you wouldn't think would have this kind of darkness channeling in it it's really something 
It's terrible. That's what it is. It is very terrible. But rest in peace to that poor child. And I hope his mother and his sister have gone on to live happy, peaceful lives. Yeah, rest in peace, Timothy O'Brien. So, let's shout out. Do we have any people to shout out? I would like to shout out everyone who gave me birthday wishes, as this will be posted after my birthday. Um, Thank you, everyone, so much for the love. I had a, a great time on my birthday trip. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you so much for the support on our Facebook page. Yes, thank you for all the support. I love interacting with everybody. I love posting memes. It's the highlight of my day. And that's the We Shouldn't Talk About This podcast group on Facebook. WStat underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter. And we shouldn't talk about this at gmail.com. If you want to email us about a case or suggest a case. Yes, please do send your suggestions our way as they are cases and topics that we don't really, that we haven't really thought of, you know? So definitely send some stuff that you think would be pretty out there and we'd love to cover it. Love to talk about it, to tell the world about it. Well, all right. With that being said, I'm Key. And I'm V. And this has been We Shouldn't Talk About This. Thanks for listening. Bye.